Thank you, Brother Danny. Appreciate Brother Danny and his friendship. Encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. We'll read this and then we'll uh, then we'll pray. Psalm 133, a song of degrees of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day, for your love, your goodness, and mercy towards us, Lord. I just pray that you'd bless the reading of your word. I pray that you'd meet with us this evening as we we study it and, and, and pick it apart and try to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Brother Holt has become a, a dear friend to me over the last uh, four years now, and uh, you folks really are, are very fortunate to have him around. He is a real Barnabas. He's a, he's a real encourager. When I'm frustrated or upset, I call him on the phone. He probably wonders, why don't you ever call me in a good mood? But, uh, <laughs> but he's the guy I look to for encouragement, and you know, I believe that that encouragement is going to become ever so vital in the days ahead of us. Uh, I think it's fitting that uh, you folks are, are going through the book of Revelation. We've been going through Revelation Sunday morning in our, uh, in our morning worship. And uh, as I keep reminding folks that the original audience of Revelation was those seven churches in Asia Minor, seven churches living in the midst of militant paganism. What's militant paganism mean, right? You've heard live and let, let live, right? Well, that doesn't apply to militant paganism. Militant paganism means that if you don't go along with our beliefs, with our doctrines, with our philosophies, with our ways of living, then we will marginalize you, we will persecute you, we will afflict you, and we will trouble you in every way we can possibly think of. That was the world of those seven churches of Asia Minor that has been kind of the standard for Christians for the last 2,000 years. And I think we are seeing our own nation kind of going that way. It's becoming rather dark in the world in which we live in for Christians. And that can discourage you, but it shouldn't. I'm always reminded, right, uh, little kids, yeah, you guys are blessed with lots of little kids here. It's a wonderful thing. Little kids, uh, one of the favorite gifts that you can get a little kid, right, is a flashlight, right? You get a little kid a flashlight, they love a flashlight. What's the first thing a little kid wants to do when you give them a flashlight as a present? They unwrap it, they pull out the flashlight, they click that button, and what do they say? Let's turn out the lights, right? Because the flashlight doesn't do much good at noon in the summertime, does it? But when all them lights are dark, then that flashlight really gets to flashing, right? It really gets to shining. The darkness, right, that seems like at times it's enveloping us, right? 
I personally don't believe there's ever been a better time to be a Christian than right now. The world that we live in is growing so dark that our lights for Jesus Christ will shine the brighter if we'll let it. Now, the Psalms are meant to be sung. We all know this, but sometimes in the English it just kind of sounds like a jumble of words. It's kind of just thrown together, and, it, and there's not much music there. It, it seems that it's without rhyme or meter. That first verse in the Hebrew, it reads, right, It is a, a very musical verse in, in the Hebrew language there. And, you know, the songs that we sing, they serve a very important purpose. There are songs that we sing that primarily just glorify God. But also, the songs that we sing are for the purpose of edifying one another. In Ephesians, it tells us to encourage one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Right? And one of the very important purposes of our spiritual songs are to drive truths home. I don't know if you ever think about this, right? We sing little, you know, we teach kids church songs from a very young age, right? We sing, give me oil in my lamp, right? Keep me burning, 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 right? You get, get anybody, right? You remember that? You make up verses. Um, you can ask my boys about that after church. It's not appropriate for service time. All right. Give me oil in my lamp. What's that talking about? That's the parable of ten virgins. It's about being ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And we drive very important spiritual truths home in song in a memorable fashion with the idea that it's going to stick with us. I uh, was looking for some, some music the other day, and, uh, and I noticed on there, it's looking at the song Amazing Grace, and, and someone had change the words to amazing grace a little bit, right? And I don't get too upset about that. I mean, it's, it's not scripture. You need to change words or whatever. But in this particular rendition, it said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. And I said, oh, that's, that's kind of sad, right? Because what's the, what's the original words? Saved a wretch like me. And I understand that not everybody knows what wretch means, right? Most folks think wretch is what I did yesterday at Kings Island. <laughs> a wretch, right? It means unlovable, unworthy, completely unlovable and unworthy, and it magnifies the grace of God that saved a soul like me. Now, Psalm 133, it's maybe not like the deepest psalm in the Bible, all right? You're not going to find this in your systematic theology books or anything like this. But I do believe it drives a very important principle home in a way that should be memorable and applicable to each and every one of us in our daily lives. Uh, Seth, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I've only got two points for you all tonight, so we should be out of here in a hurry. The main thrust, right, the, the theme of Psalm 130, he was asking for an hour and a half sermon, so... Um, the main thrust is unity, and the two points is that unity, that it is pleasant, and that it is good. Now, right there is a conundrum, right? Because good and pleasant, aren't those about like the same thing? 
You know, you get the candy, it's called good and plenty. It's good and pleasant, right? And good and pleasant, they're a little bit different from each other, right? First of all, point number one is pleasant. That unity is pleasant. And that word pleasant, it means desirable. It's when I see you enjoying that candy bar, it is desirable to me and I want some for myself. Well, that's what it has to say about unity, that unity is desirable, and it explains how unity is desirable. And you're going to say, this doesn't make a lick of sense. I'm going to, so I'm going to explain it to you. In verse number two, right? In verse number two, he explains how unity is pleasant. It says, it is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garment. All right, now if I came over here and pulled out a you don't have one underneath, so you must not be doing much anointing lately. But if I pulled out a bottle of olive oil and poured it over Brother Holt's head, he'd be like, oh man, I'm jealous. I want olive oil poured all over my head, right? He would say, that, that's not what I want. But the psalmist tells us that unity is pleasant and it's like that oil that's poured over Aaron's head. What's the, what's the context of that? Uh, Exodus 33, it gives the, uh, God gives, God's a cook, I don't know if you realize this, God gives a recipe to Moses how to make the anointing oil. It was a special oil, it wasn't just a common olive oil, it was, in fact, there was a curse for anybody who tried to use it for anything except for the anointing. And that anointing oil was used to anoint prophets, priests, and kings. And they would take that oil, they would carry it around oftentimes in that ram horn, ram's horn, and they would take it, as we see, we can read about it in, in, uh, in 1 Samuel with, with David, and you take that oil and that horn and you'd pour it over their head, right? And that oil, it would run down their head and it would get in their beards and all that and all over their clothes. How would you like to have to wash that out of your... Uh, out of your clothes, right? But they would pour that olive oil. And God gives the the prescription for this oil. And then in Leviticus chapter 8, we see the anointing of Aaron and his sons. And anointing oil, it became a symbol for joyousness, right? Uh, Joy is so very important to our lives, all right? Joy... It was the continual theme of the upper room discourse, right? Jesus wanted us to have joy. And oil, it represents joy. And the Hebrew, to the Hebrew mind, the anointing oil and the sight, the use of that anointing oil, it meant something joyful had just taken place, right? There was the anointing of a new prophet, a new priest, or a, a new king. And in the passage here, it describes the copious amounts, right? It was tons of oil all over Aaron and so much that it dripped across his beard and down and down through his clothing and all the way down to the hems of his, of his robe. And this anointing for the Hebrew people in that day was so very powerful and so joyful. We think of the Egyptian bondage of the Hebrew people, and, and oftentimes we think of all the injustices, right? The civil issues of slavery and the, the building of, of pyramids, or uh, maybe the, uh, the injustices, right? The, the slaying of, of the young boys. 
But one thing we never consider is that for hundreds of years, the Hebrew people were not able to worship. You remember, that was Moses' first request when he went to Pharaoh. He didn't ask to be free. He said, let the people go so we can worship in the wilderness. And for hundreds of years, these people had known no worship. They had no priests. They had no prophets. They had some legends, some stories. They had no Bible. And they live this way. I don't even know if we can really wrap our minds around this. We, we live uh, in, in a nation where worship is so free that it's become cheap, right? We're not really that interested in it. We can do without it. But if you've ever been backslidden, if you've ever been away from God in a place in your life where you felt like you really weren't able to worship, and if that went on for any length of time, then I think maybe you can appreciate a little bit that idea. For the first time, the Hebrew people, when they saw Moses take that oil and pour it over the head of Aaron and over the head of his sons, they recognized we can worship. We can have church. We can have someone to talk to God on our behalf. We can have someone who will talk to us on God's behalf. We can have this communion, this worship, and this unity together. It says unity, it's like the oil. In the same way, you know, it's not our buildings or our instruments, our song leaders or our pastors that make worship possible. It's not this place that makes worship possible. This is the place that designated to come and worship. And we thank the Lord that He's given us this place, especially a place where as a church we can meet together. But what makes worship possible is our anointing. Alright? Because... In the New Testament, we don't so much see that sort of anointing as you see with, with Aaron and with David and with all the other prophets and priests and kings. But in the New Testament, we're anointed by the same Spirit. And it's that anointing of the Holy Spirit that we receive when we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior that makes it possible for us to worship and to worship together, right? Jesus said to the woman at the well, says those who will worship, right? She wanted to argue. Should we worship at Mount Gerizim? That's where we, the Samaritans, we worship Mount Gerizim. And, and, and you Hebrews, you worship at Mount Zion, right? And she wanted to get into this extra biblical uh, debate about where to, to worship, right? She wanted to argue on some of the hot topics of religious topics of the day. And Jesus said, there's coming a day when those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, we are unified because we share the same spirit. Or we're not unified because we're either lost or backslidden. 
That's pretty straightforward. But either we're unified because I have the same spirit in me that Brother Holt has in him, or one of us doesn't have that spirit, or one of us is backslidden. You see, unity is pleasant. It's desirable. Next, we see unity is good. Uh, that word good, tov in the Hebrew, it, it means beneficial. When I was a kid, right, and, you know, Sunday school teachers, you know this, right? Be good, right? You tell the kids, be good. What's it mean to be good in Sunday school class when you got them rowdy kids? It means they're sitting on their hands and they're not causing no trouble, right? That, that's what we think of being as good. But that's not really the definition of good. Good, to be good, it means I'm doing something beneficial. And verse number three, it explains to us how unity is beneficial. It says, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessings, even life forevermore. If you look down at that verse in your Bible, very appreciative of our, our King James translations, because they do some things for us in the text that um, other versions don't always do for us, and, uh, and some identifiers. If you notice, some of the words in that verse are in italics, all right? Those italicized words in your King James Bibles, those are not in the original text, all right, it's not in the original Hebrew or in the original Greek. They put that in there because sometimes the original Hebrew and Greek doesn't make sense to us. All right, uh, and, and clarification is, is needed. Right, if we just gave you literal word for word, you might try to read that and you'd say, I don't even understand what this is going on because, because they don't talk the same way uh, you watch Star Wars, or it's okay for me to, you know, there's that little green guy, Yoda, and he, and he, and he talks kind of funny, and he mixes up his, his adjectives and his nouns, and that sort of, well, that's how Hebrew reads, all right? It doesn't always make a whole lot of sense if you're not a native speaker. In this case, you're going to notice, it says, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew, and as the dew is all in italics. Right? So that's not in the original text, but the translators are trying to make sense out of this. So it says, as the dew of Hermon that descended upon the mountains of Zion. It doesn't make a lick of sense, all right? Because if you look at your little Bible map there, you'll notice Mount Hermon is about 90 miles north of Jerusalem. So the dew of Mount Hermon is not going to travel 90 miles south to make it to Zion, to descend upon those hills there. So, they're trying to make sense of, of the text here. Now, Mount Hermon is much different than Mount Zion. Mount, Mount Zion is some low hills there where Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and these sorts of things are. Uh, it's arid. It's what we would think of as being typical Middle Eastern uh, environment. Mount Hermon's quite, quite different. John Gill, he talks about how uh, he camped in a tent outside of, at, the, at the base of, of Mount Hermon, and when he woke up in the morning, his tent was completely saturated with the dew. 
It hadn't rained, but just the dew coming off of these snow-capped mounts. And it's just a snow-capped mountain. It's the white all at the top, and then the valley underneath is just lush and green and constantly wet from the, from the dew of Mount Hermon there. Now, there is some disparity of, of opinion of, of what is, is really intended here among the commentators. But uh, I tend to agree, if you look at Albert Barnes, what he says in his commentary. He says what he thinks uh, the psalmist, what David is, is getting at, is that he's saying it's a, a wishful metaphor. Right? Jerusalem, it's kind of arid. It's not all that green or anything like that. It's very dependent on the wells and the pools and these sorts of things. But Mount Hermon, it's just bathed. It's just saturated with the blessings of God. And the belief is that David is praying, that David is hoping, that David is wishing that God will pour out His blessings on Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be the new place of worship. Now David is not going to be allowed to build the temple, but David has taken the ark and transplanted it and erected a new temporary tent for the Ark of the Covenant. They've erected an altar, and that's a place of worship. And now David, reflecting on the future home, the temple that he has been saving and storing up for for many years, and that his son Solomon will build, that David is praying that the blessings of God will come down on Mount Zion, the way that the dew comes down at Mount Hermon. And David's vision, how David visualized this, is not necessarily in the green, lush grass and the plants and these sorts of things, but David's hope is that the unity of the people, when they come together in this new place, in this centralized location, they come together as a nation for worship, that they will be unified. Right? There were many tribes, many divisions among the Hebrew people, right? Uh, David spent seven years of his reign in a divided nation, ruling over, only over Judah. But David's hope is that one day, through worship, there'll be unity in his nation. And he prays and says that unity, it's, it's pleasant. It's desirable like the dew upon Mount Hermon. The unity of God's people, particularly in a local church setting, is pleasant but also beneficial in every aspect of our lives. And that's the point is that God's, that unity will be beneficial you might not realize it, but sometimes people come to church and they're about to give up on their marriage, their job, or even life. And a little bit of unity among God's people. That rubs off. A little bit of unity among God's people. A unity in worship. It's enough sometimes to pick people up to give them the courage, the strength to go on. And this unity at church 
having church members who love me, who care about me, who encourage me, who take an interest in my life. It does wonders for me. It helps me to be a better husband, a better father, a better employee, a better pastor. I'm able to do what I need to do because that unity, it has a beneficial effect in my life. And if there's not that unity, it'll tear it down in a hurry. It doesn't take much. And what we see is that it's the unity of God's people that bring the blessings of God. I'm thankful in our own church, God has been doing some, some, some great things, but I think that it's only because of the unity that's seen there. So what is unity? Again, we kind of have a, a watered-down idea of what it means to, to have unity. Um, I've been in churches, <laughs> experienced some situations where things have been kind of rough. Right where there wasn't unity and everybody's uh, going at each other all the time, right? And it's a tense, a difficult place to be. I don't think that's the state of your church at all. Or if it is, Brother Danny doesn't gossip about you. So um, take heart one way or another, I guess. Um, but we kind of think of unity as, well, I didn't punch them in the nose today when they bothered me, so we're unified, Right? I didn't yell at them even though I wanted to, so that's, that's unity. It, unity in the ancient world, it, it means a little bit more, right? You consider the fact that the Hebrews, they are from, you know, generations, they were a pastoral people, living in tents, right? What do you learn, right? We went to them, one of them campsite. We went camping once for one day. All right, we went to one of them campsites that they put you at, and you're all, this is your little, uh, you know, 50 feet, and this is their little 50 feet. And one of the things I learned real quick at, at the campsite, if the couple in the tent next to you are having an argument, you know about it, right? You know about it now because the walls of that tent, they, they don't keep much sound out, right? There's not much privacy. This is the way they lived, or they had houses that, that shared walls, right? Shared paper-thin walls, right? And the Hebrew people, they lived in close proximity. I don't know when they invented deodorant. But back in that day, right, they're not only sharing space and sharing sound, they're sharing smells. They're sharing germs. I went to China. I spent uh, two weeks in China. And uh, the Chinese folk, they, they decided to take me out to a nice restaurant one day. And we sat down at this table. And uh, we are going around ordering and everything. And uh, we were sitting at this table. It was a big round table. It was a huge Lazy Susan, if you know what a Lazy Susan is, right? The whole table spun. So uh, um, they came out, the, the, the waitresses, the waiters, they came out and they put all these plates down. There was about 10 of us gathered around this table. And, you know, I, I pull the thing around, and I pull what looked like chicken to me. Uh, Chinese food here is not like Chinese food there, <laughs> let me tell you. But I, I pulled out, you know, what looked like chicken. I started trying to scoop some of it on my plate. And I, I look over, and there's some rice, and I start trying to scoop some of that on my plate. And I look up, and everyone's staring at me. 
So what's what's going on, right? Like, you know, I, I prayed privately, right? Like I prayed, and I was like, uh, you know, if I was here, I was like, oh, they're they're waiting for me to pray publicly or something. That wasn't it. I said, what, what's what's going on? And they said, oh, we're gonna wait for you. You wouldn't like the way we eat. And I'm thinking, no, I, I'm just I'm just one of the guys, right? I'm I'm one of the crew. I, I wanna I wanna be one of the people. I says, no, it's fine. Go ahead. You know what I found out? They were right. I didn't like the way they ate. So everybody, when I said, no, it's fine, just go ahead and eat, you know what they did? Everybody reached over to the thing that they wanted, reached their hand in, grabbed it out, and plopped it on their plate, and then they spun it, and then they reached their hand in the next one, plopped it on their plate, and spun it around, and this is, this is how they ate. Now, in the East... To be unified, it means more than just, well, we're not fighting, so we're unified. It means that we do life together. This is what it means to be unified, that we are sharing in each other's victories, each other's problems. We are sharing in each other's odors, in each other's noise. We are sharing each other's germs. Don't be crazy. This isn't like, a, yeah, we, we disinfect, right? When COVID hit, I says, okay, no more picking your nose. Everybody wash your hands. Everybody be careful. All right? That's not what it's about, but I'm explaining in the East to be unified, it means that we do life together. You know, this is so important in a local church context. When I was, I was in Alabama for two years, um, we had a wonderful time, wonderful ministry in Alabama. It went to a difficult situation. The Lord, Lord blessed, and the uh, Lord was done with me. I got as far as I knew we would get. I said, they need to go to the next step, and they called. The, I says it's time for me to move on. They, and now today they have a new building, full-time pastor, and they're just, they're just growing and thriving. I praise the Lord. They, they, I helped them get out of out of bankruptcy, and, and the next guy has taken them to another level. I praise the Lord for that. But, you know, where we were at in Alabama, there was a church directly across the street from us. I think at one point it was like a, an alliance church, like that group that Tozer belonged to, and then I think it, it maybe became a non-denominational church or something when I was there. It didn't have a, didn't have a brand on the, on, the, uh, on the building there. Um, and I met the pastor once. He was a, a pretty nice guy. Uh, got along okay. But this church was a little peculiar. They were a little weird. All right? When we had Sunday morning service at our church, right, I, I would preach the sermon. I would try to, you know, let everybody out uh, at, at 12 o'clock sharp, right? We did our best, 12 o'clock sharp. That was always my goal. And I, I would finish, we'd have a, a verse of invitation, I would walk to the back, and someone would pray, and then uh, everyone would file out, they would shake my hand, and they would tell me, that was a great sermon, Brother Jackman, best sermon I've ever, I've ever heard. I said, did you remember your hearing aids today? Said, no, but it was still good, I could tell. Um, and everybody would file out and go to their cars and go home. But that church across the street, you know what, they, they were, this, I can't be biblical, you know what they would do? They would go, and sometimes they would finish at 11.55, and sometimes 12.05, should be a red flag for you right there. 
But they would file out of that church building, and if it wasn't raining, they would all stand on the lawn in the front. Now, it was not a very nice neighborhood, but they would all go out there and stand on the lawn. There would be about 20 or 30 of them standing on the lawn. And they would all talk and fellowship, and the kids would run around, and the little boys would throw dirt on the little girls' dresses, and they would get up to all sorts of mischief. And those folks, I stood there and watched them one day. They would stand outside in the lawn of the church and talk to each other for a good 20, 30 minutes. And I wanted to open the door and yell, you're never going to make it to the restaurant before the Methodists if you don't leave. But they would stand there and they would fellowship. And you know, as I got to thinking about that, I told our church, I says, you know, if I was some random lost person driving down the road, and I was thinking about maybe going to church, I would pick that one. I would want to go to the one where the people like to be around each other, where, where the people had some sort of community, some sort of unity, and unity it means making time for one another. Sometimes it involves compromise. Sometimes it means that we don't always get our way. Sometimes it means that we've got to bite our tongue and, and, and swallow some of our feelings to try, to try to get along with one another. But unity means that we're doing life together. Unity, it's beneficial to us, personally as well as corporately. Unity is also desirable to the lost. They don't have it, and they know they need it. What's going to be the campaign promise of every politician this year running up to November? We're going to have unity. We're going to have unity. Unity and prosperity. Unity and prosperity. It's all you're going to hear. They know that they need unity, but they cannot find it. But if other people see our unity, particularly at church, they see graciousness overflowing into our daily lives. In time, people will take note of that unity and want to be a part of it. Our unity can be our greatest witness for Jesus Christ. And I've got scripture for it. Do you know that Jesus prayed for you during his earthly ministry? Can you imagine? If Jesus prayed for me, then I want to know what Jesus prayed for me. That should be important, right? John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's us. Talking about the apostles. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Why? that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. How does this lost and dying world know that Jesus Christ truly is the Savior, the Redeemer, God incarnate? How does this lost and dying world know this? Jesus just said. They know it through our unity. What we see is that we have a tremendous opportunity in front of us. This world is growing so dark. And I just, I believe 
that this gives us. We know that's what the book of Revelation is all about, no matter what happens. I know, Antipas and Faithful Martyr has been killed, and Polycarp's coming, coming along after him. He's going to be killed. We know that there's going to be persecution and tribulation and difficult times. The overwhelming theme of Revelation, regardless of your eschatology, is that God is sovereign. God's got it under control. I don't have any fears for what this world throws at me. However, what we need to concern ourselves with is what we're doing here on this earth to reach the lost. And if we're not unified, this world can't destroy us, but we can eat each other alive. We can destroy ourselves if we don't cherish that unity, if we don't labor and work for that unity with intentionality. God will do great things through our churches if we will allow the Holy Spirit to guide our interactions rather than our prejudices, rather than our prides guiding our interactions with one another, our behavior towards one another, if we allow God's Holy Spirit to guide our interactions, we will be unified. This world, this neighborhood will see our unity. And they'll want some of it. They'll want to be a part of it. Unity is pleasant. It's desirable. And it's good. It is beneficial. This time, I'm done. It's up to you.